Hi, my name's Tim. And I'm Cassandra. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the European, European Soapbox. This week's podcast episode is going to be drastically different than any formal we've ever done before. One, because of sort of spontaneous and just sort of the way life happens to work out, it is going to be a solo episode. So I'm recording this by myself without Cassandra. And we talked about on an informal a few weeks ago how we were planning on sort of creating a solo podcast on our formal episodes to, to highlight something that we're passionate about. Um, this might not be that episode. <laughs> it's not necessarily something that I might show to an employer. However, I want to express and educate and give sort of an intro into something that I am I am deathly passionate about and I, I, I love to, to the bottom of my heart. It's one of my favorite things. I, I love reading books about this stuff. Um, and with that said, I'm going to jump right into it. So today's episode is on behavioral economics. That's It's a pretty big chunk. It's a pretty big word. And when a lot of people hear this, they're like, well, what are you even talking about? And so I'm going to try to unpack this as best as I can with some funny, witty examples. But primarily, I'm going to treat this as a book review. I've read two wonderful books by Richard Thaler and Cass R. Sun R. Sunstein. Um, they are two professors at the University of Chicago. Well, at least Richard Thaler is. Um, you know, he's also a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Um, a Nobel Prize winner, sorry. And they're sort of considered some of the great minds of behavioral economics. Um, and I first read this book during COVID. The, the March that COVID began, I, I started to read this book, and I absolutely fell in love with it. it it's funny and witty and the way it's written just really grabbed me and it's sort of answered some of the questions and sort of the struggles I've already had with economics. And so to begin like the journey through behavioral economics that I'm going to tr try to provide in 15-ish minutes, I'm going to try to hold myself to that because I can talk about this for hours, is where does it stem from? And where it really stems from is the models of traditional economics. The models of traditional economics consider people rational. And what this means is so that the curves line up perfectly, you may have really ideal preferences, there's no issues in the market. It, If this curve moves, this curve moves, and that has an effect on GDP, whatever. That's where this whole idea stems from and struggles from, and that's this is the point where these these great sort of thinkers in economics have asked the question why and that's where the idea of humans and econs comes in and that's the terminology that they use in the book and that's the common terminology that they use in most economics classrooms um so an econ is somebody that thinks purely economically right so they have strict preferences they don't change their mind once they've chosen something they don't look back they can make calculations in a split second and humans are normal people they sometimes want an apple they sometimes want an orange their preferences aren't clearly laid out 
and it's it's different that way. So they it tries to embody what a human is is truly like. Let's put it that way, and it combines the disciplines of psychology, sometimes even political science, and economics altogether. That's essentially the amalgamation that behavioral economics is. Of course, it's a subset of economics. It has a lot of math, but it takes some of these ideas from different branches um, of, of social science. And the first sort of example that he goes, or Thaler goes through in his books is the creating of behavioral economics. And he tells one of the, the best stories I've ever heard in explaining something so academic. Uh, he talks about this dinner party that he has, and this is a very famous example, with a bowl of cashews sitting on the coffee table. And all his friends are sitting around, and this bowl of cashew is cashews are getting lower and lower, and Thaler recognizes this, and he decides to take the bowl of cashews and place them in the kitchen. Then the people at sort of around the, the, the table, they, they were saying, well, it's not worth going up or getting up to go get the cashews. I'm not actually that hungry. I want to save room for dinner. And so Thaler's whole idea behind this was he saw all these people eating cashews. He was worried that they were going to spoil their dinner, which that in itself is a, a different kind of fallacy. But <laughs> I'm going to keep it, keep it pretty strict here. Um, and he, he wonders if the people are eating these cashews out of convenience or because they actually want to eat the cashews. And then he, he takes the cashews and puts them in the kitchen and the people stop eating the cashews. And then he asks them, why did you not get up to go get the cashews if you wanted to eat cashews? And he says, or the people around there say, well, we didn't really want to eat cashews. They were here and they were convenient and it was easy to eat the cashews. But now because they're in the kitchen, it's difficult. And so this is sort of a behavioral economics principle. It's called uh, framing. And we, we have sort of these different ideas when it comes to um, what is traditionally in economics called market failures, which I have, I have my own issue with, but <laughs> I'm going to keep it short, that some things can't be explained by traditional economics. If you were an econ and you wanted to eat cashews, it doesn't matter where they are. If you want to eat cashews, you consume cashews. If you are a human and you don't want to eat cashews, but they're sitting in front of you, you might actually eat cashews. And so there's a lot of these concepts that you see in everyday life where there are issues of framing. And it's just essentially what Thaler sort of argues is that the context matters and that rationality doesn't necessarily apply. So these two books, Misbehaving and um, which is sort of talking, Misbehaving talks about the the creation of behavioral economics. Some of the papers he went through, it's essentially an autobiography of Richard Thaler and sort of his his life and his accomplishments. And then Nudge is the, I'm going to call it the, the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to Behavioral Economics. That's, that's the only way I can even explain it. It has three main sections, I think, and each section discusses something different. It doesn't talk about the specific theories. It doesn't talk about this, this, and this. It doesn't talk about like really hardcore math that you need to do. It talks about the practical examples and why this actually makes sense. And they are some of the most witty and funny and great stories that I have ever heard of. And it's 
these nudges, which are essentially, which is which is their their um their whole big theory that these nudges push people into what is optimal for their lives, and they call this uh liber libertarian paternalism, and they, they I think they revised their book and they actually rename it something, um but essentially they they say that employers people in sort of powerful positions governments etc should make it as easy as possible for the aggregate of people to have access to things that can make their life better and that if you default certain things which that's something i'm going to talk about today if you frame certain things or if you just gently nudge a person in the right direction without forcing them to do anything that's an important bit their life will be significantly better off and they will have had little to no work to do with it so one of the the classic examples is that there is a bar owner and <laughs> it's sort of a crude example but it's a good one the bar owner has this problem that in the men's restroom the men are peeing next to the urinals and he finds this a big issue because he has to clean it up at the end of the night and he thinks this sucks so it was an experiment i believe that they did in canada where they took um, images or, or stickers of the ordinary housefly and stuck it on the urinal. And they found that this significantly avoided the mess that uh, occurred in the bathroom in, in this bar. And that's just an example of uh, this little tiny solution that somehow made this bartender's life enormously better and it's actually very sort of easy to do they're low cost they're easy solutions and they provide a desired outcome that makes everybody better off and their whole sort of idea of of nudge and liberal libertarian paternalism it's a mouthful is that there's a lot of these little nudges that you can do that make people better off so they talk about retirement savings for example and this is one of my my favorite ones it's called opting into retirement versus opting out. So a lot of companies will have 401k plans or some even have IRAs or something like that, and they have an employer match. And so we find that in the data and in experiments that people do is that a lot of sort of employees don't actually fully maximize that the employer match that, that they receive. And Thaler sort of thinks about well, why? And it's really that they're saving at a, a far too low of a rate. But and, and some of them aren't even saving at all because they don't realize that they need to opt into this plan. And it's essentially, it's essentially a barrier to entry, right? When you think about the traditional sense, uh, traditional entering into a 401k, you have to call HR, you have to fill out the paperwork, you have to start setting up a deposit, you need to put in a percentage that you want to deposit a month into this IRA account. And he says that that's far too difficult and makes that the employee's work life way too hard and it, it dramatically decreases their outcome. And he says if employers simply have employees opt out of this retirement savings plan, that the total saved in this company would be a lot higher. And that's what it really is. So instead of having people opt into the plan, they would have them opt out. And of course, that's the whole idea of libertarian, the, the libertarian part of paternalism. He says that you want to push people in the right direction 
but you want to give them the opportunity to say no, which I think is is great and very American, <laughs> I have to say. Um, and so that when you have a person join the company, they're automatically enrolled into this, this 401k plan, and they then have the opportunity to say, okay, I'm good. Like, I, I think I can invest better. Otherwise, I want to save. Otherwise, I have a different project I want to work on. I'm going to opt out of the 401k plan. But a lot of employees, they just say, no, I'm good with this 401k plan. This is fine. And because that employee didn't do have to do any work, they're actually better off than if they had to opt in or anything like that. Um, that's sort of the big classic example of retirement savings. And I'm gonna I'm gonna try to bring it to somewhat of a conclusion as an introduction to behavioral economics. That the way behavioral economics and specifically nudge works is they're tiny little fixes, is how I think about it. So they're not dramatic government policy changes. They're little tiny fixes in a company, for example. And there's a ton of wonderful, great uh, podcasts, books, research on different behavioral economics experiments, um, from creating healthier work habits um, to retirement savings. They have an argument about marriage in here, or in, in Nudge that I think they removed in the edited version. Um, and really a bunch of these little tiny things that when we think about who, who humans are as a whole, that they don't fit into the traditional frameworks of economics, and that sometimes policy, government, just simple things, the way things are set up, make it very difficult for, for humans as a general. And if we can recognize this as sort of academics, as policymakers, as people, we can actually make our lives significantly easier. And I, I sort of want to end this off with another example. Um, Thaler lives in Chicago, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, and he, or the city of Chicago reached out to the University of Chicago, I believe, and they had an issue with this this curve, um, I think merging onto um, an interstate or something like that, and they found that people around this curve sped way too fast and that this led to significant accidents on this part of the highway. Um and they asked if the economics department, or I don't remember who exactly it was, if they had a solution to it. And Thaler says, yeah, I have one. Paint lines um, getting increasingly closer together up until the stopping point that you need the cars to stop at to merge onto the highway, I think it was. Um, because this gave the driver the illusion that they were driving faster and faster and faster which then they recognized, ah, I need to slow down, stepped on the brakes so that by the time that they needed to stop or to merge or the accident-prone zone happened, that they were actually already slow to at or below the speed limit so that they didn't cause an accident on this highway. And I think that that's just a great example of something on the policy side that you can do. It's relatively cheap to paint some lines on a road, but it saves lives to a certain aspect. And I'm. this is something that I, I love to talk about, and I would highly recommend these two books. You may not necessarily agree with everything said in these book, books, but I think that it is an important sort of eye-opening experience to anybody thinking about what even is behavioral economics. People having trouble 
sort of grasping the major like assumptions that that happen in mainstream economics which i did a long time and i still have a gripe with some of them and i think that these two books sort of in a winning funny way provide an insight into this new fun world and i hope that this podcast episode made sense for one it gave you an insight into the very like basic aspects of economics and of behavioral economics and I'd, I'd love to do a follow-up episode and sort of dive into this deeper and it, i hope it really demonstrated the passion that i have for this i love behavioral economics and i had a professor tell me that behavioral economics can be this perfect tool in my toolbox and that's what i've really embraced it as it is a passion of mine that i i love reading these books i love reading more about sort of this development and i i reflect it in my my economics course load i ask questions about how does this apply and of course there's critiques of this and as to any theory there are but i hope that this episode gave an insight an overview and maybe even sparked some interest in what behavioral economics is and so with that i'd like to end this episode and say thank you for listening and join us next week on the european soapbox The European Soapbox podcast reflects only the opinions of the authors and do not reflect the views of any affiliated and or mentioned organizations. We are students still in the learning process, so information should be taken with a grain of salt and not blindly accepted. The information is for informational purposes only and do not intend to serve as any recommendation. We do not intend to isolate anyone on this podcast and encourage diversity and differences in opinion. The European Soapbox stands independently from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The authors are the sole owners of the rights to the European Soapbox podcast. As students, we ask for the opportunity to grow and improve in our podcasting journey and progression as individuals. If you'd like to reach out to us, send us an email at europeansoapbox at gmail.com. This podcast is hosted by Cassandra Alvarino and Tim Fry. All music is produced by Till Iringer. That's T-I-L-L-Y-D-E-A-N dot W-A-V on Instagram. A special thanks to our friends, families, and supporters.